Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right, good to see you guys yet again. If you have a Bible nearby, uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 should be relatively easy to find. We'll get there here in just a bit. Uh, Today, we begin a new teaching series all about the Ten Commandments. We're going to talk more about the ins and outs of the series here in just a bit. But on that theme of the Ten Commandments, I've got a thought experiment for us to consider first. What do you think would happen if God would have crowdsourced the Ten Commandments? Like, instead of having Moses go up on the mountain and receive the commands from God, what if God would have just turned to the Israelites and gone, I don't know, this is tough. What do you guys think we should do? How do you all think we should live exactly? More specifically, what do you think would happen if he were to ask that today to to 21st century Americans? Coincidentally, we do not even have to imagine what that would be like. Because a few years back, a couple book authors here in the States did just that as a way of promoting their new book on the intersection of atheism and humanism. They asked the general public to contribute their suggestions on the best rules for humanity to live by. And after thousands upon thousands of contributions, here were the winners that they picked for the new Ten Commandments. These were listed out in an article on CNN titled, Behold Atheist New Ten Commandments. You guys ready for these? Here they are. One, be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Two, strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. Three, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Four, every person has the right to control of their body. Five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Six, be mindful of the consequences of all of your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Seven, treat others as you would want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Number eight, we have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. Nine, there is no one right way to live. 10, leave the world a better place than you found it. That's what it would be like if we wrote our own 10 commandments to live by. Now, there's a lot that we could probably say about that list, right? Some of them I actually think are quite well articulated. Some of them I'm actually a fan of. There's also some thick irony in that list. For instance, one of them states that God isn't necessary to be a good person or to live a meaningful life. But interestingly, the seventh rule on the list is just a slightly modified version of the golden rule, as in the one from the Bible that God came up with. So bare minimum, God is at least necessary for the formulation of that one rule. There's also the very interesting choice to place number nine, quote, there is no one right way to live, right in the middle of a list dictating exactly how people should live. 
But all of that really is beside the point, at least to me. The, the most interesting thing about that list to me is that it actually proves something. It, it proves something. It, it proves that all of us, all human beings who have ever existed, actually do believe in morality. So much so that evidently, even the people least interested in God's definition of morality still want there to be universal rules for us to live by. They want there to be shared definitions of right and wrong in the world for people to operate out of. They just don't want God to be the one determining those definitions of right and wrong. And that's true of every person in this room too. Every person in this room right now has functional definitions of right and wrong. Whether or not you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, whether or not you consider yourself a religious person or even a moral person, we all possess a moral code that we operate out of a majority of the time. As much as we love to throw around cliches in our culture, like everyone has to figure out right and wrong for themselves, or I just have to live my truth and other people have to live their truth, we don't actually believe that, at least not fully. Because any time that we ask questions about life, like should I blank or is it okay for me to blank, you are asking questions there about morality about right and wrong. Anytime you make moral judgments or moral assessments of other people and their actions, like, oh, I would never do that or no one should ever do that. Those statements, too, are based on assumptions that you have about morality, about right and wrong. So the question actually is not, do I believe in morality? All of us believe in morality. The question is, what morality or whose definition of morality do I believe in? Whose definition of right and wrong do I actually live by? And, and maybe to ask the question a little more critically than that, am I thinking correctly or at least consistently about that morality? Are, are my functional definitions of right and wrong even consistent a majority of the time? Do they hold up to any amount of scrutiny or criticism at all? And I think for followers of Jesus in the room, specifically, the question is, is my definition of morality consistent with God's definition? Does my life align with what he says about right and wrong, the way that he designed life on planet Earth to work? And all of that is what this teaching series is going to be about. From this Sunday all the way through November as a church, we are going to look in depth at this well-known list of 10 commandments in the Bible. 10 rules or principles for how to live that have been around for thousands of years at this point. But even more than that, we are gonna use these 10 commandments as a sort of guide to help us think critically about morality in general, about our functional definitions of right and wrong and where we've borrowed those definitions from as a society over the years. And full disclosure, the goal is to discover together why these Ten Commandments are actually incredibly sound ways to think about life. Now, I'm not planning to make a case for why we should or shouldn't plaster these commandments all over courthouses across our country. I'll let somebody with more free time than me debate all of that. All I'm saying, the case I'm going to make in this series, is simply how foundational these commandments are 
to the way that you and I already tend to think about life, whether we realize that we borrowed those definitions from the Ten Commandments or not. Before the series is over, the goal is to spend a week on each of the Ten Commandments to talk about what they mean and why they matter and what it looks like to obey them as followers of Jesus in the 21st century. But before we do that, we've got to do a few weeks of setup. I want to spend the next three weeks, before we get into the commandments themselves, trying to give us some lenses to look at the commandments through. So, so that when we get to the commandments themselves, we're understanding them in their proper context. We're, we're thinking about what could make us inclined to like them or not like them when we read them. So we're going to dissect the commandments themselves while also dissecting our own cultural beliefs and assumptions around morality. So we have our work cut out for us in this series, but I feel like I needed to unpack that because when I told some people that we were doing a 13-week series on the Ten Commandments, they were like, wait, did you like make up a few more? Like, why, why 13 weeks? And it's because we've got to do some setup first. So this morning, I want us to kick things off by looking not at one of the Ten Commandments, but actually at one of the first commandments given in the entire Bible, in Genesis chapter 2. Because I think this command actually helps us understand our posture and our disposition towards God's commandments in general. So if you've got your Bibles open already to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to pick it up starting in verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man, or as we know him, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Stop right there with me for just a second. Because we just read what is the very first command given to humanity in the entire story of the Bible. It reads, and I quote, the Lord God commanded the man. Now, question for you. Is what we just read that God commanded, is it a positive command or a negative command? Does he tell Adam to do something or not to do something? Positive. Yeah, he tells him to do something. In fact, we could say it's more than positive. It's, it's actually a pretty liberating command that he gives. It's a command of freedom. God says, quote, you are free to eat from all but one tree in the garden. The garden, by the way, that God himself designed and created and planted for the purpose of humanity enjoying it. That's a pretty sweet deal, if you ask me. The first command is positive. But I bring that up in part because I, I think some people who only interact with the Bible from a distance uh, tend to miss that about God. I, I think some of us tend to assume that God is mainly only interested in restricting people's freedom. In our mind, God just goes around finding the things that people really enjoy doing and then telling them to stop doing those things. Almost as if every word out of God's mouth starts with the word don't. But that, I would argue, is a very shallow understanding of the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, according to this story, puts humanity in a garden with all kinds of enjoyable things, including each other, if you're following me on that, and says... Go for it. Enjoy. Enjoy everything that I've created. Almost all of this is for you, for you to enjoy. That's the God that we read about in Genesis chapter 2. 
But then, after that positive command, God does complement that with a negative command. Continuing in verse 17, it says this, But, God says, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember the name of that tree for later. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God says, do eat from any tree in the garden except for one. Don't eat from this one tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, here's what's interesting to me about this part of the story. We are not told much about why they shouldn't eat from this one tree. It it does say that when they eat of it, they will surely die, but that's more of an outcome than it is an explanation. I would imagine that for a lot of us as sort of skeptical modern people, the story still leaves us asking, okay, but why can't they eat from all of the trees? Why, Why did God make one tree only to have it be off limits for them to eat? What's wrong with them eating from that one tree specifically? Does anybody else feel that question rising in them as they read the story? I think it's an understandable question. But here's the thing. I would argue that that is kind of the point of the story. The the point is that there is one tree in the Garden of Eden that simply isn't for Adam and Eve to eat from. There isn't a reason given, at least not one that feels satisfying to us. To put another way, I, I think God wants them to trust that there is a reason, even if they don't know what that reason is. I think God wants them to trust that there is a reason for him saying, do not eat from that tree. And I would argue that the name of the tree itself reinforces that interpretation of the passage. The name of this tree is what? Do you remember? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think that's telling. It's almost like God is saying in the story, that by them not eating from that tree with that name, they are trusting God to define good and evil for them. They're trusting his definition of right and wrong. They're trusting that if God said, don't eat from this tree, then there must be a reason for that, even if that reason is not explicitly given. So in the Bateman household, We have a bit of a slogan, a mantra, if you will, that we repeat to our kids over and over and over and over again to the point that they are very sick of it and that is totally fine with us because we're going to keep saying it. Um, The slogan that we say over and over again to our kids is that whenever there is a rule, there is a reason. Whenever there's a rule, there's a reason. That's our way of teaching our four-year-old and our seven-year-old that we as their parents are not in the habit of making arbitrary rules. We don't make arbitrary rules. Rather, if there is a rule that we give them to live by, then somewhere underneath it, there is a reason for it. Now, just to be clear, that does not mean that I owe them that reason in every situation. It also doesn't mean that even when I do explain the reason for the rule, it's going to make any more sense to a four-year-old or a seven-year-old than it did before, or that it's going to make them like the rule any more than they did before. But it does mean that there is always a reason for the rules that we give. We are inviting our kids, by repeating that to them over and over again, we are inviting our kids to trust me and Anna that there is a reason for the rules that we give, whether or not they understand that reason. I would argue it is very much the same with God and God's commands. Whenever God gives a rule, 
or a command. There is always a reason for that command. Now, similarly, that does not mean that God is obligated to share that reason for us in every situation. And it doesn't mean that even if he does explain the reason for it, that we would understand the rule or like the rule anymore as a result of knowing that. But it does mean that God does not make arbitrary rules. Here's the way that we put it in our city church class for people. We say sin isn't bad because it's against the rules. Sin is against the rules because it's bad. Do you hear the difference there? That idea, I would argue, makes a ton of difference in how you understand the commands of the Bible and indeed how you even perceive of who God is himself. If you think that God is just going around arbitrarily deciding to command and prohibit certain things, that creates a certain unhelpful perception of God in your mind. But if you know that God gives commands for our good and for the good of the world, you get a very different picture of God in your head as a result of that. Which means that a lot of our relationship with God comes down to one word, and that's the word trust. The invitation from God to Adam and Eve in the story of Genesis is this. Trust me, God, the one who created you, made you, blessed you, and gave you everything under the sun to enjoy. Trust me to define what is good and what is evil. Trust me to define what is right and what is wrong. And you just go on enjoying the world that I gave you to enjoy. But God wants them to trust his definition of right and wrong. The question is will Adam and Eve accept that invitation or will they not? Will they receive and respect that boundary given from God or will they question it and reject it? Turn with me over to Genesis 3 and let's find out what happens next. If you already know the end of the story, don't spoil it for everybody else. Genesis chapter 3. So, Adam and Eve are in the garden. All seems to be going fairly well so far until another character enters the plot line. Look with me, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent. Okay, did I forget to mention that there's a talking snake in the story? Because there totally is. The talking snake, the serpent, says, or it says that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Now, just to see if you're paying attention to the story so far, what is the answer to that question from the serpent? Did God really say that they must not eat from any tree in the garden? Answer, he did not say that. He 100% did not say that. In fact, he almost said the precise opposite of that. He said, and I quote, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. He just said not to eat from one of the trees. But you've got to realize in the course of the story, this is not an honest question from the serpent. He's crafty. He's not genuinely wanting to know what God said earlier. His agenda is to cast doubt onto God and the commands that God gave. He's saying, wow, did, did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? How restrictive and controlling that God sounds. He, he must really not want you to enjoy yourself at all. That's the message that the serpent is telling. 
That's the, that's the message that he's selling to Adam and Eve. So let's see how Eve responds. Verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Good memory, Eve, way to go. Verse three, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Again, so far so good. And you must not touch it or you will die. Okay, it's subtle, but something just happened in that latter half of verse three. According to Eve, God also said that they shouldn't touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But question, did God say that part back in Genesis 2? No, he he didn't say anything about touching or not touching the tree. He just said not to eat from it. So here's what I would argue happened at this moment in the story. The serpent's lie failed, but his tactic worked. His lie failed, but his tactic worked. He wasn't able to convince Eve of something God didn't say, but he did cause her to believe something incorrect about God, that God is more restrictive than he truly is. A functional belief set in somewhere in the recesses of her mind that went something like this. Maybe God is holding out on me. Maybe he is unnecessarily restrictive. Maybe he doesn't want me to enjoy good things after all. So seizing this opportunity, the serpent continues. Verse four in the passage. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, that one tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So seeing that he's making some traction with Eve in the story, the serpent begins assassinating at this point God's character and God's motives. He, he tells Eve that the consequences of eating from this tree aren't actually legitimate, that they won't actually happen. He says, you won't surely die, he says. God is just jealous, he's petty, he knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him, and he doesn't want that to happen. That feels like competition to him. So notice the contrast here in the story between God's invitation and the serpent's invitation. Notice the difference. Earlier, God said, trust my definition of good and evil, right and wrong. The serpent comes along later and says, don't trust God's definition of right and wrong and instead define right and wrong for yourself. Create your own definition of right and wrong and don't answer to anybody else about it. He says, you, you actually don't need to know God or worship God or serve God. You don't need any of that. You can become your own God instead. The choice before Adam and Eve is A, trust God's definition of right and wrong, or B, define right and wrong for themselves on their own terms. So let's see what she decides. Verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So Adam and Eve decide at this point in the story that God's definition of good and evil, right and wrong, isn't something they are interested in anymore. They're not going to take his word for it. They're not going to trust him. They're going to choose to define right and wrong for themselves on their own terms. And immediately when they make that decision, we read that this happens. Verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. 
So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So Adam and Eve eat from the tree, and the whole thing comes crashing down. As a result, they are now infiltrated with with shame and a desire to hide from, from God and from each other, all because they decide to reject God's definition of right and wrong and instead define it on their own terms. And I would argue that much of the power in this story from Genesis 2 and 3 actually comes from realizing that this isn't something that just happened once a long time ago, but also something that happens over and over and over again in human history. This is not just a story, in other words, about one man and one woman in a garden one time. It's a story about the perennial problem with humanity. This is a story about about the problem behind all the other problems in our world. Namely, that instead of us trusting God's definition of right and wrong, we have chosen to create our own definitions of right and wrong. We've chosen to define good and evil for ourselves based on our own perspective, from our own limited vantage point. We have created our own version of morality by which we judge ourselves and each other constantly, independently from God altogether. This happens at every level of humanity, if you're paying attention. So the reason that your kids cannot get along with each other is because on some level, their definitions of right and wrong are different from each other in that moment. One of them thinks that it is right for them to get to play with a toy all by themselves, And the other kid believes that that is wrong enough that they will push the other kid over for not sharing. Their definitions of right and wrong are different from each other. They don't line up. This is the reason that you and that person at work just don't seem to see eye to eye on anything at all. Because they think that it is right to do the minimum amount of work to collect a paycheck, and you think that is wrong because it negatively impacts you and every other person that you work with. This is the reason that you don't get along with your roommate. They think it is right to wait until later to take out the trash in their room because they're in a hurry, and you think that's wrong because it makes the whole apartment smell horrible. Your definitions of right and wrong are different in that moment. This is why you and your spouse fight if you're married. This is why you and your neighbor secretly, quietly despise each other. This is why you don't get along with your in-laws. This is why America seems so divided so much of the time. This is why Democrats and Republicans never, and I do mean never, agree on anything at all. This is why countries go to war with other countries. The problem presents itself in a multitude of different ways on the surface, but underneath the surface, what is happening is this singular problem. We are all defining right and wrong for ourselves on our own terms. And because we are all defining it for ourselves, our definitions of right and wrong never quite line up with everyone else's. You see, when we all define good and evil for ourselves, it does not lead to any of us becoming like God. It just leads to everyone thinking they are God. It leads to all of us deciding that we get to define right and wrong, and then we expect everyone else around us in our immediate vicinity to abide by our personal definition as a result. And when you have nearly 8 billion people on planet Earth all doing that, what you get in return is chaos. 
disagreement, dysfunction, conflict, frustration, suspicion of one another, injustice, sexism, racism, abuse. You see, this is what the story of Genesis is trying to tell us. The problem behind all the other problems in the world is that human beings have decided to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They've decided to define good and evil, right and wrong for themselves. That is why the world is the way that it is today. And I think this story also gives us some really helpful lenses for what is happening when we individually think about God's commands. There is a process that I have seen play out time and time again throughout the years. An example after example of people who end up walking away from faith in Jesus after deciding to follow him. Nearly always, the process looks something like this. I'm going to walk you through it. First, the mindset is, I don't understand God's rules. I don't understand God's rules. It, it starts with us not understanding why God says that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Maybe it's a specific command that he gives around your sexuality or your money or your time or most anything else. But we hear a command from God and we think to ourselves, that doesn't make sense to me that God would command that. I don't understand that commandment from God. Then over time, that can morph into something more like, I don't like God's rules. I don't like God's rules. So here, our posture morphs from confusion to something more like discomfort. Now it's not just that we don't understand some of the things that God says, it's that we actually don't like a lot of the things that God says. They start to feel stifling and restrictive to us in one way or another. And if that goes on long enough, it becomes something more like this. I don't need God's rules. I don't need God's rules. Here, we start thinking to ourselves, you know, I don't know that I actually need belief in God in the first place. It's that quasi-commandment from the list that we read at the very beginning, quote, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Now, just FYI, as a side note here, uh, if you want to become a good missionary to American culture, American society in general, I think it looks like realizing that this right here is where the majority of Americans are at right now. So, so they wouldn't say that they're like, against the idea of belief in God. They, they wouldn't say that they're antagonistic towards it. They would just say they don't really feel a need for it. The posture is, I don't need God. He just feels unnecessary to me. The God of the Bible just feels unnecessary to me. But then, for a lot of people, at least, this process takes one final shape, and it sounds like this. I must reject God's rules. I must reject God's rules. So this is the final step in the deconversion process. Eventually, thinking that you don't need God's rules morphs into something much more antagonistic. When we adopt functionally different definitions of right and wrong as our guide to life, then what will happen is we will actually start to judge God by those new definitions that we've just come up with. And where he doesn't measure up or where he doesn't agree with us or where he calls us to believe things that are unfashionable or out of vogue, well, then we actually decide that the correct moral thing for us to do in that situation is to reject God's definition of right and wrong altogether. 
In our mind, in these moments, we must actually leave God behind in our quest to become a more moral person by our own definition. I'll just go ahead and tell you, part of the reason I'm bringing this up is because after serving as a pastor for over a decade now, I have seen this progression play out dozens and dozens of times. People who at one point seem to know and follow Jesus, they move from one of these stages to the next until they eventually walk away from Jesus altogether as a result. Sometimes that process takes place over months, sometimes it's over years, sometimes it's over decades, but this almost always is the progression that people follow. It's been happening literally since the first pages of Genesis. If you currently would claim to follow Jesus and one day in the future you decide to walk away from all of it, I can almost guarantee you that something resembling this happened in your mind, either consciously or subconsciously. So here's the question we've got to ask. Assuming that the bulk of us do not want that to happen to us, what should we do? How do we respond to all of this? How do we avoid going down the path where we end up rejecting who God is and feel completely justified in doing so? The scriptures actually give lots of instruction and lots of guidance on the answer to that question. What should we do about all of this? And we're going to talk about that really for the rest of this series. But at the same time, I do need you to see that that's actually not the question that the Bible answers first. The first question that Scripture answers about all of this is not actually what should we do about all of it, but rather what did God do about all of it. As you read through the rest of the story in Genesis 3, you will find all kinds of fallout that results from this decision by Adam and Eve. There are all kinds of physical consequences and spiritual consequences and relational consequences for their decision. But to me, the most fascinating thing to watch in the story is actually God's response to what they did. I, I think from a human perspective, you would almost expect God to go after they made the decision to eat from the tree and everything comes crashing down. I think you would almost expect God to go, well, I told you guys not to do this one specific thing and you did the one specific thing and for that reason, I'm out. Almost like God's an investor on Shark Tank or something, right? Like just, <laughs> I told you not to do that thing, you did the thing and so now I'm, I'm kind of done. I'm washing my hands of this. I mean, just that, that's how you and I would probably respond if we're completely honest, right? Just think about the last time you told a friend of yours or a family member of yours not to do something and then they did it and it went horribly wrong. Was your instinctive response in that moment, whether you said it out loud or not, to be like, man, it sucks to suck. I mean, I told you. I literally said, don't do that thing. Now, good luck with the horrible consequences of your actions. I bet you wish you would have listened to me. I mean, I think that's our instinctive response as human beings. So you would almost expect in the course of the story for that to be God's response. But in Genesis 3, that doesn't seem to be God's response at all. Instead, what we read in the story is that God seeks out Adam and Eve. They run from God. They hide from God. They dodge God, but God pursues them. 
We're told that he goes and finds them in the garden. He asks them what happened. Adam and Eve are filled with shame over their nakedness as a result of their sin. And it says that God made them clothing out of animal skins for them to wear and cover their shame. He begins remedying the fallout from the decision that they chose to make. You see, we often run from God, but God never runs from us. He runs towards us. In the middle of our sin, in the middle of the shame and the fallout from our sin, God comes looking for us. He begins fixing what we broke. That's the type of God that we read about in the scriptures. And, and even as he lays out in detail some of the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, in the story, he also makes a promise in the middle of all of it. In the story, it sounds like this, and it takes us a little bit to decode it, but he says to the serpent at one point in Genesis 3, he says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now in context, he, in that verse, is a future descendant of Eve, a human being, in other words. The serpent, the, the architect of evil and death and chaos in the world, it says will strike that human's heel, but the human will crush his head. Theologians actually call this, that line in Genesis 3, the proto-evangelium, which in Greek means the first gospel or the first mention of the gospel. God is saying that one day it will appear that evil and death and chaos has had the final word over Jesus as he dies a cruel death on a Roman cross, but that that death and eventual resurrection will actually crush the head of the serpent. It will deal a decisive blow to the very presence of evil and death and chaos in our world, which means that from the moment Adam and Eve chose to define good and evil for themselves, God had already set into motion a plan to redeem everything that they lost, everything that we lost. God does not move away from us in our sin. He moves towards us. And here's why that matters for everything that we've talked about this morning so far. The case that the scriptures are going to make over and over and over again, especially when you read the New Testament, is that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus are actually the primary reason that we should trust God. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus are the primary reason we should trust God. Romans 8.32 to me is one of the best summaries of it. It says it like this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God did not even withhold his own son for our good, don't we think he can also be trusted with everything else? The reason that we know God can be trusted is at the cross. That's how God proves that he's worth listening to, that he's worth giving our lives to. That's how we know because of what happened in the cross of Jesus. So, so listen, as we move through this series over the next 13 weeks, as we look at this ancient list of do's and don'ts that attempt to show us right and wrong from God's perspective, I'll just go ahead and tell you there are going to be things that you don't understand. There may be things that you don't like. There may be things you feel like you don't need or that you don't feel like need to be on a list like that. 
And part of the reason that we're doing this series is because we do want to better understand God's commands. We want to do our best to piece together why he says some of the things that he says, why he says to do certain things and not do other things. So we're going to talk about all of that in the coming months in this series. We are going to try as best we can to understand God's commands. But at the same time, I want to point out to you this morning as clearly as I possibly can that understanding God's commands is actually not the primary reason given for why we should obey them. The reason from God, the, the, the invitation from God throughout the scriptures actually is not, trust me, because my commands will always make perfect logical sense to you. It, it, it isn't actually obey me because you, are all, you will always fully understand why I say to do certain things and not do other things. The invitation from God, rather, throughout the scriptures is actually trust me because of my son Jesus. Trust me because of him. Look to the cross where you can verify once and for all that I am indeed trustworthy. And in light of that, Trust me when it makes sense and when it doesn't. When my commands seem rational and logical and sensical to you and when they don't. We are invited to see as followers of Jesus in the crucified body of Jesus that God will stop at nothing to redeem what was lost, to fix what we broke and to invite us back in after we stepped out on him. That is what makes him and his commands trustworthy. So every single week following the teaching here on Sundays, we take time together as a church family to remember the cross through the bread and the cup at tables throughout this room. This for us is a way of remembering and resetting our entire being on the most crucial moment in human history the moment when God sent his son to the cross to show us once and for all that he could be trusted. And as we do that, we actually ask him to help us align every part of our being with that reality as we follow him. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited to participate in that with us as we respond to the gospel and as we sing. Let's pray together.